The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Peter Thalarsen, the media editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you this week from London. I'm talking to Tom Bergen, who's an investigative journalist at Reuters. Uh, Tom has had a long and distinguished career uh, reporting on big stories like BP's oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico and exposing the tiny tax bills of giant corporations like Starbucks and Google. Um, I'm catching up with Tom to talk about his new book, Free Lunch Thinking, How Economics Ruins the Economy. Uh, It's an entertaining and thought-provoking exploration of economic theories that have been both widely accepted and largely wrong. Tom, welcome to The Exchange. Hello, Peter. It's good to be with you, albeit virtually, but uh, from London too. Yeah, no, we're really glad you could make the time and and uh, and, and very uh, interested to talk about your book, which um, uh, which I, I kind of uh, sort of devoured really in, uh, in 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 a couple of sittings. Um, and I think I mean there's a lot to talk about in it, a lot of ideas and sort of and things to explore. But I, I, what I'd like to start with really is is um, just to get a sense of how did you go from digging into the tax affairs of large multinational corporations. Um, to to base, doing what's basically an investigation of economic theory. What's the what's the path that led you there? Thanks, Peter. I, I'm I'm delighted you like the, the book. Um, I mean, the the as you say say this grew out of my reporting, and as I say in the book. Um, I'm an investigative financial journalist. I've covered companies for over twenty years now. And usually uh, what I do is I, I look at evidence, uh, you know, crunch the numbers. I, I do a lot of work on spreadsheets. Uh, that's the kind of investigative reporting I do. Um, and it's uh, looking through documents, accounts, etc., and just trying to find the evidence of where money goes and, and understanding the, the reality behind complex situations. So, um, and that's a, that's a technique I pl- apply in this situation. But the, the basis of it was really growing out, as you said, of things like my, my, my reporting into taxation. And also another area I do a lot of work on is regulation and looking at uh, regulation gaming. But for example, in the taxation case, I did a lot of uh, work uh, some years ago. One of the stories, for example, was Starbucks and its tiny tax bill and, and on other companies. And one of the things that you do when you're investigating a story like that, you talk to lots of people around that situation. So for example, policymakers whose job it might be to ensure that that these kinds of abuses don't happen. And also the the experts who might give give some ideas, a perspective on that. In this case, sometimes that's accountants and lawyers, but it's also of course economists. And what I found from talking to the politicians was that a lot of them were being guided by economists. And one of the key things they were being guided on was, well, you know, corporate tax is not a great thing anyway. So if they're avoiding it, it's maybe not so bad for the economy. And then you find yourself looking at that and say, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. So corporate tax is a bad tax. Well, why is that? And, uh, oh, it's, you know, I've spoken with politicians who told me, oh, the OECD and others had, had found this to be the case. They'd proven it to be the case with deep investigations of their own and analysis of, of data. And, you know, I, I, I looked at that, kicked the, t- the tires a little bit. I was 
kind of surprised by that, not finding it entirely convincing. But over the years, you know, obviously most of one's time is spent on the day job investigating. And I found this again in areas like, uh, you know, regulation. I've done a lot of work on money laundering and illicit money flows. And it's always surprised me how these often come come back to the UK and we have a London-based company at the center of many of these scandals. The reason for that is because there's a lower regulatory hurdle here in the UK compared to places like Germany. That's deliberate. It's not accidental. It's because the, the governments in the UK, successive governments of left and right, have taken the view that red tape is really bad for business. It's totally toxic and it'll really restrict your business growth. So again, you had an issue of there was an economic theory that was driving this uh, governmental action. And I was looking at things like that and, and really finding myself saying, well, I can see the costs of these strategies. It could be in lost revenue to the government if it's tax avoidance. It could be money laundering if it's if it's a lighter red tape. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of not seeing the upside of these, these measures in the same way. So I just found myself getting increasingly interested in that balance. And then that led to this book where I decided, well, let's just really dive in here and examine this evidence. And also to look at how the theories emerged, because that's one of the interesting thing about a lot of economic theories is the, the process by which we came to believe things which we believe to be true. And that in economics, it, it doesn't follow the scientific process that we may have experienced in areas like physics or chemistry. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, some economists would argue it is, it does, but, but I think, no, I think one of the interesting things about the book is, is you sort of, you track how these ideas, how they get formulated and, and how they get developed and then challenged and so forth. Um, I mean, uh, just to sort of focus in, and I'd quite, quite like to talk a bit later on about, about sort of the, you know, the kind of the, the, the political economy really of, of kind of how those ideas um, uh, kind of get adopted, but but just to focus in a bit on, on corporate taxes, I mean, you um, obviously you've done a lot of work on this and you sort of write a, a quite interesting uh, uh, investigation into how thinking about corporate tax evolved, particularly focused on the ideas of Arthur Laffer, the creator of the famous or perhaps infamous uh, Laffer curve. Um, what, why is he so interesting in this story? Well, Arthur Laffer is a, is, is a very interesting figure and really an enormous figure. If you go to the Smithsonian in Washington, you will see a napkin displayed uh, on which there is a curve, the Laffer curve that has been drawn. And the, the little moniker on that is that the, the note at the bottom says this is uh, the, the napkin that changed the direction of, of, uh, of the U.S tax policy and certainly the, and I guess the I guess we should just explain for the people who who aren't familiar with it this is the curve that shows as as tax rates increase the amount of revenue increases until you reach a certain point and then lowering tax rates uh, um, basically brings you in more revenue exactly intuitive idea yeah totally it's and it's it's basically saying that yes that high taxes can actually reduce overall revenue uh you know for centuries people have believed if you want to get more money in for the government you raise the tax rate and what the laffer curve was saying look that that's that doesn't always work that if you get above a certain level it'll actually be counterproductive and the you know at, at one sense you know there's the the, the truism on which it's based, which is that if you have a zero rate percent, percent rate of tax, you'll have no 
revenue. And also, if you have a 100% rate of tax, you might have no revenue because nobody would have any purpose to go to work. Uh, in the late 1970s, this, this was adopted by the Republican Party in the United States. And it really has driven policy uh, for the Republican Party ever since. And, and successive presidents have you know, played, you know, you know, field, you know, have have pledged fealty to, the, to those ideas. Uh, Arthur Laffer was given the Congressional Medal of Honor um, uh, in the by the previous administration, President Trump, and um, he so his ideas have infor obviously informed the tax cuts that uh, President Trump enacted, which were basically the signature legislative policy of, of, of uh, his term. And uh, so this is this is an incredibly powerful idea. It has also influenced uh, tax policy here in the UK. Uh, Boris Johnson has repeatedly said that he accepts the Laffer curve uh, in, in the past couple of years and, and going back, you know, much further. And uh, in lots of other countries around the world, we see this being cited as well. And this, this, this idea that tax rates at a certain level are counterproductive. And of course, it wasn't just a theoretical thing from the 1970s on. People genuinely believed that they were in what Arthur Laffer called the prohibitive range, the range where tax rates were too high and counterproductive, and therefore that the society would be benefited by bringing down the tax rates. The idea was that if you bring down the tax rates, one, the government can get more revenue, but two, you can encourage the the economy to grow. And that's the real upside here, that people are incentivized to work harder. Businesses are incentivized to expand. Entrepreneurs are incentivized to start up new businesses. So this was meant to be a, a, a huge, a, a virtuous circle. And the key point here was that this was very different to a Keynesian stimulus. You can't cut taxes to leave more money in people's pockets and with the intention that they will go out then and spend that money and, and create more demand in the economy. The idea of the Laffer curve was about stimulating supply, hence the term supply side economics. And the question is really around whether you believe that people will respond in that way to the price signals they get from a tax a tax rise. Not everybody believes so. George uh, W. Bush believes so. His father said it was voodoo economics so it's um but it's it's certainly been very influential but also i mean i guess thinking about this from a sort of an economics sort of academic economist point of view i guess you could say well um i mean arthur laffer was never a sort of mainstream consensus figure in economics he's not like keynes or someone like that and um uh, so his ideas were sort of challenged at the economic, at the academic level, you know, pretty rigorously and robustly and fairly early on, and and actually, the, the even the implementation of the early implementation of of his ideas, this idea that tax cuts could somehow be self-funding because you'd raise more money, uh, even though you cut the tax rate, um, that was also fairly widely debunked. So I guess you have to ask the question, like, you know. How does how do ideas like this sort of continue to 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 to, to survive really um, when when you know they haven't really they haven't really stood up to scrutiny? Well, that, that's an interesting thing, and I guess you know I, I, there's an issue of of blame here that I I, I deal with in the, in the book, and I agree 
as you say, that the economists said, okay, well, it doesn't work exactly the way that, that Laffer says it does. They, they won't be self-funding. Uh, however, the economic community, I think, really gave the idea oxygen by saying it's not entirely accurate, but the general thrust of the idea is correct. And what you had in the 1970s and in the 1980s, the academic economic community went from a position of thinking you know, the economy can be managed uh, reasonably effectively with demand management by government taking, you know, injecting more demand when the economy slows down, you know, taking some demand out with tax rises and other things, uh, spending cuts when, when the economy is overheating. They went from that thinking, no, actually, we can really influence people with price signals you know, very effectively. And that wasn't something, I mean, really, the idea up until the mid-1970s, economists generally took the view that individuals and businesses were pretty immune to taxes, that people's behavior, the amount of hours they worked, their tendency to start a business was not really impacted by changes in the tax rates. By the late 1980s, Pretty much every economist believed that. And that meant that while Arthur Laffer uh, and the Laffer curve may have been seen by many people to be a bit extreme, uh, it was actually, you know, it became consistent. It went from being totally at odds with the dominant consens consensus to actually being reasonably consistent with the dominant consensus. And I think that that's something that the economic community really needs to answer for is, you know, how did they suddenly make this shift? And it was really quite suddenly. And this is why I say it's quite different to the normal scientific process. You know, it, first of all, you tend not to have those sudden shifts of paradigm in, in, the, in the natural sciences. And if you do, it's usually on the basis of some very concrete new evidence. Whereas in economics, you had this big shift in paradigm that really just is best explained, frankly, by, by a change in political mood. Yeah, and I think the paradigm shift again is something that, because I think it sort of feels like we're, we're sort of in, in the middle of one of those at the moment, perhaps. Um, and I'd like to come back to that, but, but just to sort of follow on on that idea, the sort of the, the broader framework of sort of, you know, broadly self-correcting markets, um, the idea of sort of government intervention being um, uh, being being wrong. I mean, I think um, you you know you also you you then you see this very clearly in a, in another kind of example that you talk about in the book, which is um, uh, the taxation of of pay, right? Which which also it seems. Is is um, as was, was kind of subject to this thinking that that tax was, the tax initially was was maybe was was a good thing, and then and then and then sort of evolved into this idea that taxation um, uh, could be counterproductive. I mean, again, how did how did that how did that happen? It's it is interesting. I mean, I've went to visit as uh, Arthur Laffer in Nashville as part of the reporting for the book and I was kind of puzzled like what's he doing in Nashville you know the the big economists in in the United States are usually in you know around the Great Lakes or on either coast you know, they're not usually all in Tennessee and he explained to me that his choice of location was very much a result of tax he was influenced by the lower tax rates in Tennessee compared to California where he had previously been based um, so he sees, says you know I'm an example of of the way in which people's decisions are influenced by by tax rates and he his 
argument would be that people started to study the data. Now, interestingly, he's not a data person. He's not somebody who's done, you know, a lot of studies and, and his curve was a theoretical construct rather than one that was based on theory. Interestingly, one of the people who was most influential in, in having sort of Lafferism adopted more widely was an early critic of, of Laffer, uh, namely Mar Martin Felstein, who was a paragon of the economic establishment in the United States and who was, was a presidential advisor to, to Reagan. And, um, you know, he, he, he and some others did uh, some data analysis. They, they got some income figures from the IRS and others and sought to show that there was this uh, huge response on the part of those who had received the biggest benefits from in terms of tax cuts um, and that those people, they happened to be the wealthiest because the, the upper tax rates were cut the most. They... Uh, Felstein and others claim to show that these people responded immensely to lower tax rates and that, that they said that the, the, the result of that would, was a, a massive improvement in the overall economic performance. Now, the, the interesting thing about that was how does one make that jump? How does one measure that somebody is responding a lot to, to a, tax, a tax cut. Now, historically, what people said, well, you know, if we cut the tax rates, do people work harder? And then say, well, do they work harder? We said, well, are they working longer hours, for example? And there had never been any evidence of, of people working longer hours at any income level, um, except perhaps some people at the, at the lowest income level when things interact with the, with the benefit system, but that's a separate issue. Um, but um, Basically, this, this thing of people working harder had never previously been observed. Felstein came up with a different way of thinking about it. He said, look, if you want to see how hard a wealthy person is working, don't look at their time card. Don't try and analyze how many hours they spend in the office. Think about how much they earn, because how much they earn will tell you how hard they worked. Now, what he saw was that during the 1980s, that people's that wealthy people became a lot wealthier. And he said, well, this was obviously because they had gotten a tax cut. It encouraged them to work harder. And that extra pay was a reflection of their stronger endeavors. Now, of course, that today certainly is incredibly controversial view. To be honest with you, the data on it is incredibly weak, not least because of what we saw in the 1990s. I mean, I cite in the book that the average Wall Street uh, bonus uh, went up by tenfold, like a thousand percent during the 1990s which as it happens was a period during which those people in those categories had a, had a tax increase, uh, namely as a result of, of Bill Clinton's tax rises. So it's, it, it's, 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 it's the, the, the data has now shown to be totally nonsense, but it, even at the time it, it was really quite weak. I mean, some of the numbers that uh, Martin Felstein used, I mean, he had 35 people in the, in the upper income category that he was relying to prove this again, it's very difficult to understand how these ideas gained such widespread currency and uh, given the paucity of actual hard data on this. Um, and you can really only look at what was going on in the, in the broader world. And I think that you did see a huge amount of skepticism of government emerged in the 1970s. And on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1980s, we saw different kinds of governments and different 
kinds of ideas dominating. In all kinds of elections, we saw a, a different perspective on the part of, of voters, places like Texas, which went from being staunchly democratic to being a, a, a Republican stronghold. And people just really began to question who, who was the bad guy in the economy? And where people previously might have thought, you know, it's people on Wall Street or it's big business taking advantage of the little guy, they, t they took the view, no, it's, it's government because people somewhat lost faith in government. So I think that that's a, a sort of key way in which we changed our, our, our ideas, our beliefs. We don't call them beliefs. We, 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 we would see them as being our understanding of facts, but we changed that perception. Uh, on the basis of little evidence, but because the context had changed very significantly, I think. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, so you could argue that we're, I don't know whether we're in the middle of one or, or you know, kind of we've already arrived at a different destination, but it definitely seems to me that sort of since 2007, 2008, the financial crisis sort of challenged this idea of markets being broadly, you know, kind of, self-correcting and, and, and that sort of market efficiency is, a, is, is an end in itself to be desired. Um, you, could, you know, we've lived through a pandemic for the past year where people have obviously had to completely rethink their, um, uh, uh, their sort of sense of the role that government should play and, and how that should work. Um, I mean, would, you, would you say that's, do you, do you, and, and I guess you also, you know, coming back to the, to the, to the tax question, um, you know, we're in a situation where Joe Biden, the new president, um, is talking about raising corporate taxes. The UK, which only a few years ago was lowering corporate taxes, is now talking about raising them again and how it doesn't, you know, it's whether they're 20% or 25%, it doesn't really make a difference. I mean, um, how would you sort of assess the state of that, of that shift? And do you think, are we, are we sort of, are we now in a permanent or at least a temporarily different world? I think I think the corporate tax question is is really interesting because it has to be remembered that the UK started its corporate tax cutting drive really in anger at the at the height of the financial crisis. So you know we we were going through austerity here. Uh, there was no question that the exchequer was impoverished, but we still went on a, on a huge binge of tax cuts. Um, now the reason for that was because of a, a paradigm of a belief that this actually didn't cost very much, that it had a, certainly overall a net benefit for the economy. So we're not now the government, and again, a conservative government, so it's not about a right or left, a conservative government has taken the view, no, we actually need to increase the taxes. So it's not just about the, the fiscal situation or background. I think it basically because they've decided it doesn't work. We haven't had the bang for the buck. All the reporting and news flow we're getting out of the treasury in, in different media is kind of showing that. And I think that uh, that, so there has been a change in perspective. People are re-examining the models and saying the idea that you automatically get an increase in, of investment when you cut the tax rates doesn't follow. And so therefore this is really you know, quite an expensive uh, endeavor, as Boris Johnson said when he scrapped a previously scrapped or a year ago the planned reduction in the in the corporate tax rate in the UK. He said he'd rather spend the money on the NHS. So there has been a shift, and I think that's interesting. And you're, I think you're absolutely right. People saying, you know, oh, we're, they're seeing some value in government. 
However, you know, I call the book Free Lunch Thinking. And, you know, the truth is one of the reasons these ideas are incredibly uh, powerful is because they offer you something for nothing. So at the same time that we're seeing this talk of you know, lifting corporate taxes, which is a repudiation of a previous free lunch thinking, uh, which was that if you cut corporate taxes, your revenues can go up. Um, and that's something that literally, you know, previous chancellors claimed, uh, Hammond and Osborne. Uh, we're still seeing uh, sort of, you know, the, the, the prevalence of some, some other free lunch thinking, namely, for example, the idea of cutting regulation. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful uh, idea that if you are in a hole in particular, that you can cut some regulation and we can magically accelerate out of that. One of the things currently being discussed in the UK is around employment protection. I don't know what way that's going to go. The debate seems to be ongoing. It's very politically charged, as it always is. But certainly it seems to be occupying a lot of, a lot of time. And there are think tanks and others who are calling on the, on the government to consider uh, using the freedom that Brexit affords to reduce employment protection here in the UK. So again, that's an idea that, uh, that there's, there are some easy wins and e easy economic gains by ripping out this red tape. Um, Again, it's one of those things, that, as I highlight in the book, that just the data on each of these different regulatory areas that people think are a free lunch, they're just not there. It's something that we, we want to really just grab hold of. And uh, so I think that while there has been, you know, there have been some changes in thinking, I think it's very difficult uh, for people to let go of these ideas that we can have some easy wins. Um, so I, 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 I think, you know, we would need, to, we'll continue to need to be, to be cautious in our thinking on these things. So if I can just go back to sort of the academic uh, economics of this for a minute. Um, I mean, you, so you've got this, you know, it's quite a stark title, how economics ruins the economy. Um, and I guess I'm just wondering, sort of, maybe in defense of, of, of economists a bit, um, Clearly, you, you cite lots of economists who were who were in, involved in sort of in, in developing and propagating these theories that then have, have been sort of discredited or turned out to be wrong. You could equally tell another story about a load of economists who who went the other direction, right? Who who were who were who were challenging some of these ideas or who actually did some debunking of them. I mean, um, I mean, you've got one on the you know <laughs> you've got Professor Gabriel Zuckman. Um, you know, very prominent uh, uh, academic economist is, is quoted on the on the cover of the book, um, uh, and has obviously done a lot of work in 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 sort of um, in challenging some of this thinking about uh, about low tax rates and so forth. Um, I guess I just wonder, sort of, are you being a bit uh, are you are you being a bit unfair in 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 painting a set of ideas and a set of theories that sort of gain traction as being the whole of economics? It, well, I think you know, the one of the things, one of the 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 cases. I mean, certainly it's the case that uh, there are heroes in this book, and there are people who I think have have done very well. And there's also people who I disagree with. Uh, people like Ronald Coase, the, the Nobel Prize winning uh, British economist who spent most of his career at the or spent a lot of it at the Chicago School. He was bastion of that. Um, he uh, and but I think that. Uh, so, and, and, and I think really obvious ones would be David Card and Alan Kruger, who in the early 1990s 
when uh, it you know people were absolutely the, the economic establishment was firm in, in the idea that uh, the minimum wage killed jobs and they really persevered against some incredibly uh, difficult opposition to, to just show the numbers that that thinking wasn't supported um, so I think in in many cases and many of the examples that I look at that you will find people who said at each point, no, this is wrong. And in some cases, the, the minimum wage one, you know, that there was Lister who decades earlier had also criticized the, the dominant logic. But at the end of the day, you know, there have been in the areas that I discussed in the book, a dominant logic. This is something that the paragons of economic science have defended. And if you look at the minimum wage, I mean, the opposition that Card and Kruger received was just unbelievable i mean it was you know you know foul language being used in the, in the wall street journal uh, by you know nobel prize winners to to, to criticize these uh, these guys you know people like gary becker making up uh evidence that just didn't exist to say oh everybody you know the decades of evidence to show this and there was there was none the decades of looking for evidence so i think that oh, you know obviously you know, one doesn't want to tar everyone with the brush. But what I've done is I've, I've looked at where there is a consensus and that the majority's view certainly is, is this case and whereby the leading figures in that community seem to have agreed, agreed upon something uh, and, and, and sought to tackle that. So I think that in those areas that the profession has, has let the world down and not done really what they should be doing, which is, of course, you know, looking at things in an objective way and helping inform us, or just tell us they don't know or they don't know. But, but I wonder then, just to, to explore that a little bit further, I mean, are we just being a bit naive here about, um, about sort of the, the, the economic interests at work, um, you know, that actually it suited an awful lot of big companies and it suited an awful lot of banks and it suited, you know, kind of people who could fund you know, individuals who were making lots of money and, and, and made more money if they paid less taxes, who could fund think tanks and, and, and uh, um, support uh, uh, academic publications and, 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 you know, kind of, you know, pay for campaigns to persuade journalists that this was a good idea or whatever, that there's a sort of, there's an economic sort of, I mean, reality to, to underpinning all of this that, that means it is not just a, a kind of a noble battle of ideas. I mean, I think if I think about my own personal interest, a lot of it is in, is in banking and in financial markets, you know, and I think if you go back to sort of pre-2007, the sort of the, the received thinking amongst even the sort of the, the, the supposed deep thinkers um, amongst the macro, about the macroeconomy and about banks and about financial markets was really that, you know, these were essentially, these were populated by rational actors who were sort of broadly acting in their own, economic self-interest and therefore they would be sort of self self-regulating and yet you know you can go back and find uh, work by by people like Daniel Kahneman you know another Nobel laureate who was debunking the idea of people behaving rationally much much earlier back in the 80s back even in the 70s and yet somehow those two those two things didn't really connect so I just wonder whether we're being a little bit uh, potentially being a little bit sort of naive about how these ideas get propagated. I think, it, I think definitely it is the case that 
in in an economic environment that everybody will argue for their own position and you know businesses will argue one thing trade unions will argue for something else um consumers might seek something else and you know we 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 understand when the press releases go out and the you know funded work you know obviously funded work the one that we research we know about being funded that that should be taken with a grain of salt i think that nonetheless you know when you've got you know, a, a, a profession uh, which people believe to be objective and, and fact-based, uh, particularly if they're in hallowed halls of, you know, in, in universities, that we, you know, we would expect them to behave in the way, something like the way that, you know, people assess in the current situation, you know, vaccines or remedies for COVID, that we're getting something that's akin to an objective perspective that's independent. And one of the things that, that, I, that I find interesting sometimes is to read investment bank research, because and it's one of the things that I deal with in the book is that, you know, people who get paid by investment banks to give opinions I've got a very clear incentive to be right and to be objective, because if you're not, you're going to make a call that's, you know, very quickly, you're going to be wrong. You've, uh, if, if you're uh, strident politically in one direction or the other, and you pin your uh, economic outlooks on that basis, maybe because you don't like the current government or you think it's great, uh, you know, your clients will very quickly realize that this work has got little value. And if you're making specific calls, your chances of being right are going to be lower than somebody who's, who's objective. And what I've found surprising sometimes is just the sort of, occasionally you're reading something and it's sort of the good sense, you can see, well, this is you know, somebody cutting through something that elsewhere you're seeing a very politicized or, or, or polarized debate on. And I think that there's really no reason why academic economists can't be objective and independent of the current political mood. I think that one of the difficulties, of course, is that is, is a broader one, which is um, highlighted by the fact that in many of the ideas that I criticize in the book, there is an agreement between left and right. And on the minimum wage, for example, it was not, you know, right of center economists who, you know, were alone in saying this. It was, it was a unanimous view pretty much in the 1980s up to the early 1990s and mid 1990s. And uh, that is because I think that, that, that economists find that if they say the work, agree that the world works in a certain way, it's a mechanism that is driven by price signals, then they are relevant. Uh, every single one of them have got a special knowledge that they can impart uh, and that ordinary people don't have, and consequently they can be involved in conversations and be influential. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to see why you know, people you know, adopt some of the positions that they do when you look at it purely on, on, on the evidence basis. But when you, you know, you know, look at, talk to some economists, this desire, uh, and people will admit this in, in, in the profession, you know, this, this desire to be consulted uh, and to be relevant is very powerful. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's definitely true. And I guess there is also a lesson there uh, for, for people, frankly, trying to get their ideas out into the into the mainstream that it's it's not just enough to be sort of to be to be right on a uh, or, or to be persuaded of being right on a on a sort of an academic level you actually have to you have to work a bit harder to get these ideas across because 
politicians and journalists and members of the public and whatever aren't necessarily going to um, going to going to delve into these things in quite the depth that you have. Yes, I mean, you know, one of the reasons that Laffer was so successful is because he was great at stories. I mean, he's he's a very personable person, um, gregarious, and that obviously helps when you talk to people. But he, you know, great with the turn of an anecdote. And this one of the things I look at is this whole idea about the way in which Andrew Mellon created the the nineteen twenties boom with tax cuts. You know, you look at the go back and actually look at the tax data from the early twentieth uh, century, and you can see what happened. And stem it stems back to the First World War funding decisions, but you know it totally doesn't doesn't support that analysis. But it's a great story. You can pick a few numbers. So yeah, the way you tell them um, can explain a lot about what we believe. Okay, well, Tom, um, I think that's really all we have time for. But uh, but definitely, the way you've told this one is uh, um, is is very engaging. So uh, um, uh, thank you for uh, uh, thank you for writing the book and thank you for coming to to talk to us. Um, so free lunch thinking, how economics ruins the economy, um, is out. Uh, I think on January the twenty eighth, um, and uh, um, yeah, put by Penguin and um, thoroughly recommended. Tom, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, good luck with uh, with whatever investigation you're uh, you're working on next. And um, uh, yeah, hopefully we can actually see each other face to face at some point before too long. Thank, thank you, Peter, and I look forward to it too. Take care. Thank you for listening. Uh, this podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner in New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes or anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings. The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also read our views daily on breakingviews.com, on reuters.com, or on Twitter at breakingviews. Thanks for tuning in.